Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we welcome Daniel Bessner. Daniel is the Ann H.H. and Kenneth B. Pyle Assistant Professor in American Foreign Policy in the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. Daniel is the author of a new book, Democracy in Exile, which tells the story of Hans Speyer, an exile from Nazi Germany who became one of the early Cold War's most influential American defense intellectuals. Hello, Daniel. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks very much for having me. Well, we're uh, very proud to be publishing your book, Democracy in Exile, Hans Speyer and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual. Could you tell us uh, who was Hans Speyer? Uh, sure, and I'm, I'm very proud to be publishing with Cornell. I've had a great experience working with uh, you guys throughout the entire process. Um, so just to give a brief uh, biography of Speyer, he was um, someone who was born in, in Berlin in 1905, uh, came of intellectual age during the tumultuous Weimar Republic, and in my opinion at least, was really at the center of some of the most exciting intellectual institutions of the 20th century. As a young man in the Weimar Republic, he was the first graduate student of Karl Mannheim, uh, the founder uh, of the Sociology of Knowledge at the University of Heidelberg and interacted with a lot of people there who later became well known, uh, probably most uh, famous of which are Talcott Parsons and uh, Hannah Arendt, who knew Speyer uh, from their time at Heidelberg pretty well. Um, after Hitler came to power in 1933, Speyer became the youngest founding member of the New School for Social Research's University in Exile in New York City, uh, which saved the most uh, European intellectual immigrants from uh, Nazism more than any other institution of higher learning in the United States. Um, some well-known people who, who the New School saved in the 30s include Leo Strauss, um, Erwin Piscotter, and Claude Levi-Strauss, and later people like Hannah Arendt, and Hans Morgenthau taught at the New School, and Speyer was really instrumental to setting up what became known as the Graduate Faculty of Political and Social Science there in the 30s. Um, when World War II broke out, Speyer, like many of his generation, uh, applied to work for the U.S. state and became head of the Committee of the Foreign Broadcast Intelligence Service. Um, Became, basically became head of the German Committee of the Foreign Broadcast Intelligence Service, which was the group that analyzed German propaganda sent to the United States. So Speyer essentially pro provided propaganda analysis to people throughout the government. And in 1944, actually right before D-Day, uh, which occurred, of course, on June 6, 1944, so in May 1944, Speyer moved from the Foreign Broadcast uh, Intelligence Service to the Office of War Information, where he was head of the German group that wrote the propaganda directives that were intended to guide Office of War information propaganda sent to Germany. Uh, so he was really influential in shaping the U.S. propaganda effort against Germany uh, from in 1944 and 1945. Um, soon thereafter, in 1946-1947, uh, Speyer became the acting chief of the uh, first associate and later acting chief of the State Department's Area Division for Occupied Areas, where he was uh, influential in shaping um, the State Department's policies uh, on information and education occupied Germany. 
uh, even though that didn't wind up having much effect on the ground. Uh, and then after, probably why most people are, are, would be interested in Inspire today is he became the founding chief in 1948 of the Rand Corporation's Social Science Division, which was really influential in shaping a number of new, uh, U.S. foreign policies over the course of the 50s and 60s, uh, most famously nuclear strategy, but also negotiating tactics at the Korean War, mystic talks, psychological warfare strategy, and, and numerous other ways the United States approached the world. So just to give a brief capsule biography, that's who Speyer was. That's great, that's great. Now going back to say 1939, I was reading in the book that he, um, the Speyer insisted to his colleagues that it was, quote, the primary task of the social scientist to give advice to the statesman, and your uh, capsule summary of his life, he certainly took his own advice to, to heart. Um, can you tell us more about his journey from university intellectual to key role at RAND and, the, and his close work with the State Department? Sure. Um, so in the 20s, uh, basically, Speyer was a socialist, and he argued that the social role of the intellectual was to educate the mass working class constituency so that it would be able to navigate the new institutions of the Weimar Republic. So of course, Germany was uh, basically a monarchical state before World War I, and of course, during World War I, and afterwards, it became uh, a democracy for the first time in German history. And Speyer, as a socialist, wanted workers uh, to be able to use the, the, these new institutions and new powers that they were given by democracy in order to bring about a socialist transformation. Uh, nevertheless, over the course of the 20s and early 30s, Speyer adopted an increasingly jaundiced view of workers as um, they uh, seemed to support the Nazis and the communists, which were two groups that were dedicated to really destroying the Republic. So Speyer began to argue that ironically, in order to save democracy from its existential enemies, from the Nazis on one hand and from the communists on the other, intellectuals, it turned out, couldn't actually trust workers or what, what we might call today ordinary Germans to make wise political decisions. Um, so soon after Adolf Hitler was appointed to the German chancellorship in 1933 and Speyer and his family were forced to flee Germany uh, for the United States, um, Speyer began to argue that intellectuals shouldn't actually engage in politics in the way that he had argued in Weimar, that is, as educators of a working class constituency, but should rather advise decision makers directly in a way that, would, that they wouldn't be subject to the whims of a public opinion that had proven in Germany that it couldn't actually guide policy effectively. So in essence, Speyer universalized what he understood to be the Weimar experience of ordinary Germans supporting anti-democratic uh, groups as, a, as the, the possible end state of democracy in all countries. And it was for this reason that in the 30s he advocated that um, intellectuals like himself needed to avoid the traditional democratic responsibility of um, educating the public in favor of advising decision makers directly. Um, now, Speyer, of course, put his own advice into practice when he joined the um, government during World War II, as I um, talked about earlier, uh, and then uh, when he joined the Rand Corporation. Now, what's interesting to note is that in the 30s, Speyer argued that when the crisis was over, essentially when the Nazis were uh, defeated, um, that he would be able... Um, that, that when the Nazis were defeated, uh, Americans would be able to return to normal democratic functioning. After the war, uh, the emergence of the Soviet Union as a threat that Speyer and many of his generation analogized with Nazi Germany um, 
by saying that they were both quote-unquote totalitarian regimes. Um, the emergence of this threat led Speyer to re-embrace this sort of logic of crisis that he had used to justify anti-democratic actions in the uh, 30s um, and to reapply it in this new context. But the difference was, whereas in the 30s, Speyer argued that the Nazis would eventually be able to be defeated. Um, in the late 1940s, the peculiar features of the Cold War, of course, this bipolar system, the fact that no one actually wanted to fight a nuclear war, led Speyer's moment of crisis to transform into an era of crisis in where expert governance, in which experts weren't actually subject to uh, any sort of democratic accountability, be it public or even congressional opinion, became institutionalized in places like RAND. So in that way, we could see how Speyer's trajectory from uh, university intellectual to what I call in the book a defense intellectual was spurred by this progressive disillusionment with the public, by progressive not in the political sense, but as the increasing, his increasing disillusionment with the public that was eventually instantiated in a variety of Cold War institutions like RAND in the 40s and beyond. That's fascinating. I mean, that, that's what, uh, uh, reading your book, that what really uh, came forth was, as you were saying, this this uh, disillusionment with uh, with the public and this uh, whole logic of crisis is the term that you used. After World War II, there's a there's a there's a belief. Okay, now we can go back to normalcy. But then with the Cold War, um, there is no normalcy. It's continual crisis, and therefore it's, it appears as if Speyer and his colleagues created this mentality where the ends justified the means when it came to protecting democracy, uh, that democracy needed to be uh, less democratic to survive and fight during times of crisis. How is this, how is this legacy of emergency governance continued to this day? Well, I think you see it with a, a general, um, what I would call today, a liberal disillusionment with ordinary people's capacities for, for having an active or, or wise role in policymaking. And, and this is really uh, embodied, I think, with the emergence of what we would call today uh, the liberal uh, technocrat from mid-century and beyond. But I don't personally like the term technocrat because it, it, it's, it, it, it makes it seem like there's no ideology behind it. But I do think that there's an ideology that's based in the skepticism of the so-called demos or the, the public the public's capacity um, to make wise decision. And, and you see it really with the expansion of all the structures of expert governance that have exploded in the United States since 1945. There's enormous amounts of think tanks, of course, today, places like Brookings and the Council on Foreign Relations, which existed before 1945, were joined afterwards by places like RAND, the Hudson Institute, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the Cato Institute, which are all premised, even though they would never say this, to some degree, on removing public opinion from um, political affairs in the sense that it's the experts who are supposed to decide policy and particularly foreign and economic policy, whereas the public should just listen to those who know better. So I think this general idea is still an, is very much an important part of American political culture. And I think you actually saw it very much in the response, and particularly the liberal response. At, and here I'm, of course, distinguishing between uh, liberals on one hand and uh, what one might call leftists or left-wingers on the other, but particularly the liberal response to the Trump election. And what really... Um, 
really came out to me was, I, re- I don't know if you recall or the listeners recall, but after Trump was elected, there was a cartoon that went viral that was from the New Yorker, which is uh, there was a, a big man standing on a plane saying something along the lines of, I don't trust this pilot. Um, why don't you all just let me fly the plane and we'll be better off? Which to me um, was a representative of the fact that Many uh, people in what might be called the liberal elite or the liberal establishment essentially think the average American is a, is a, a dummy or unable to know what's best for him, the quote unquote, what's the matter with Kansas problem, and that um, this is a reflection of this earlier fear developed in the, in the 20s and the 30s by people like Speyer, but also by people like Walter Lippmann, which argued that ordinary people essentially couldn't be trusted uh, to help guide policy in a wise direction. Interesting. Yeah, I've, I've definitely seen this, you know, it's not that it's new. Well, it isn't new because you're basically laying the groundwork uh, for this, um, this attitude that the, the average American doesn't know anything. They're, they're uh, clueless and that we need experts. And I'm also seeing this countervailing trend. There's several books out in the past year or two, you know, the end of the expert. Um, right. That's interesting to see as well. Um, and, and that's what's really interesting, right? Because I think, um, especially since the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and the Libya, uh, the Libya intervention and the failure to respond adequately to the 2008 financial crisis, there, there's, much need, uh, there, there's a much deserved criticism of experts that's, that's basically infiltrated the public sphere. And so one of the problems that I identify in the book is that when Speyer and his generation created this system of expert governance, they, they very consciously didn't want to have any public accountability, mm-hmm. right? They assumed that the, uh, the experts would naturally police themselves or the government would naturally police the experts or, or something in that regard, but they never really talked about it. And I think one of the major failings of the system of expert governance that they created was that there is no public accountability. So when the experts do fail and they fail repeatedly, they're not held accountable to anyone. And you could see this really very much so in the career of Paul Wolfowitz, who helped lead yeah. to this disastrous Iraq war. He leaves the Bush administration, becomes head of the World Bank, resigns from the World Bank in disgrace, but nevertheless finds a perch at the American Enterprise Institute before becoming part of Jeb Bush's foreign policy team in the 2016 uh, Republican primary. And remember, everyone thought at first that Jeb Bush was actually going to win that primary. So there was absolutely no accountability for Wolfowitz, which helps lead to the erosion of faith and expertise, which is, which is actually a correct response. Now, the problem is, in my personal opinion, uh, a knowledge-driven society like our own actually requires experts in order to make policy effectively. The question is, uh, how do we hold these experts accountable? And how do policymakers know when they should listen to experts and when they should not? Now, of course, the last question could only be answered in the abstract. It's very difficult to know when someone's advice is going to be good or not, but you could at least consider it fully whether one should always be listening to experts and in what conditions one should listen to experts. But I do think that if expert governance, which again, I really believe is critical to governance in a modern democracy like our own, um, if it's to be saved, there needs to be expert accountability system of expert accountability set up so that the public, or at the very least its representatives in Congress, are able to sanction and hold experts responsible for what is very poor advice. And moreover, the increasing um, 
what would what would be the right way the increasing non-transparency of the american uh political establishment since 1945 makes it difficult for a lot of americans to even know of what expert advice consists because uh their expert advice isn't necessarily subject to freedom of information act requests and the like so oftentimes the public doesn't even know what the experts are saying so there's this divide that has been created and which was created very consciously by people like spire at uh mid-20th century yeah, it seems like we're living in an unprecedented time where uh, you don't even know what's true or not. And then you have the leader of the free world saying that everything is fake news. Um, and as you said, we don't have to, we can go back to Vietnam, uh, but then also the Iraq war. Um, right. Instance after instance where the so-called best and brightest experts made horrible decisions. Um, yeah, I guess, is there any, are there any promising trends that you see within within the US government or perhaps other governments around the world that are moving towards having more accountability uh, for experts? No, I, I frankly, uh, sadly, I, I don't see anything right now. And I, I think you see this very much with the uh, the response of the uh, foreign policy establishment to Trump's election, where they're lamenting the the degradation of this so-called liberal international order, which, in my opinion, and I would I would say I feel it's safe to say in most historians' opinions, never actually existed, mm -hmm. especially for those people who lived in the global south. As the people of Iran, Guatemala, Vietnam, Nicaragua, Chile, Argentina, etc., what they think of the liberal international order, and you'll get a very different response than to what you would get in D.C think tank. So I think that, that there really is no accountability uh, amongst these experts uh, and these expert groups who continue to employ people and to give them um, cushy positions, uh, employ people who have essentially contributed to some of the worst foreign policy disasters in American history. Um, and I think there is, uh, this is a difficult phenomenon and I'm not exactly certain as a historian why it occurred, and I hope to pursue this in, in further research going forward. But I do think as a concerned citizen that it shouldn't uh, continue to exist, that the system of expert governance shouldn't continue to exist in the way that it has, and that we really need to uh, develop systems of accountability uh, to ensure that uh, an expert system functions effectively. I mean, in my opinion, and I end the book on this point, accountability is the only way to ensure that uh, expert governance functions. Otherwise, you get people, the same people, giving the same bad advice uh, over and over and over again for decades, as has been going on really in the last 20 years, if not even longer. Well, let's hope your vision comes to fruition sometime <laughs> soon. <laughs> yeah, let's um, hope. Let's dream. Yeah. Um, are you, are there any uh, upcoming events or, or presentations that you're going to be making on the book? Uh, yeah, I'm going to be in next October. I have plans to speak uh, on the book so far at Columbia, at Princeton, uh, at the New School, um, and in Cambridge in England, and um, at City University of London in England as well. And I hope to be adding some upcoming dates to this uh, quote unquote uh, a book tour. So if anyone's listening to this, I'd really appreciate if you could uh, come, particularly from the East Coast, in the first week of October. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, thanks. We're, we're really excited about that. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll promote uh, these events on our social media channels. Great, thank you so much. Get the word out for you. Hey, these these uh, interviews always go quickly. Uh, is there any last things you'd like to say about the book? 
No, that, that's all. And really, thanks so much for taking the time. And uh, I think it's really, you're doing God's work. Uh, we need more academic books in the world, especially when we have all these books that come out every six months that aren't very well thought out. It's really important that we maintain academic publishing at a high standard like Cornell does. Well, thank you. And again, we're, we're very proud and excited to be publishing your book. So thank you so much, Daniel. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Have a great rest of your day. Uh, you too. Take care. Bye. Bye. That was University of Washington professor Daniel Bessner, author of Democracy in Exile, Hans Speyer and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual. As a loyal podcast listener, we would like to offer you a special 30% discount to purchase the book. Visit our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu and enter the promotion code 09POD at the checkout. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.